everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to The Katie Helper Show. So happy to be here with you. We have a great show coming down right now. We're about to start a great show. The great show is Chris Hedges, the wonderful Chris Hedges, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, amazing writer. His latest book, Our Class, Trauma and Transformation in an American Prison. We're going to be talking about war. We're going to be talking about Russia. We're going to be talking about abortion, all great things. Before we are joined by Chris, we're going to watch some clips. How about that? And you know, a great place to find good clips to watch is Case Study QB. Everyone should be following him on Twitter, but he compiles great clips. So let's just watch, let's watch this presidential historian assessing Biden on CNN. You know, I've just come back from Europe and Europe is facing uh, the, the inflation that we're facing. And what's so striking is that uh, Europeans are not blaming their governments the way we blame our government for the inflation. Um, there are a number of issues. I mean, the president, you know, hasn't been perfect. The president uh, uh, promised a Build Back Better bill and clearly didn't have the votes and I think hurt himself in the process. So it's not that this presidency has been <laughs> perfect, but for him to be at, at 39 percent, he is he is in Watergate levels. Mm -hmm. I mean, he is that he has fallen that far. And it doesn't make sense. There's no great, uh, there's no great scandal surrounding him. Yeah. We're at, we are helping, we're helping an ally that's in a war. Usually Americans rally around the flag in, in such a circumstance. So the president, I think, is facing headwinds that are um, unusual. I would say a lot of it has to do with the pandemic and the yeah. fact that, that we are still, we still haven't recovered from, from COVID in the sense that as a nation, we still have an, uh, an, an, an economy that it reflects COVID. And uh, some people are still getting sick. So I think there are a lot of reasons. I think it's, we've been really hard on this president, more than we have been on, on uh, his modern predecessors. Okay. So to help me analyze this, I'm bringing Brad, Bradley Bloom. Hi, Brad. How's it going? Hey, Katie. I'm doing all right. Yourself? Good, thanks. Very good. So what do you think of that clip? Are we being too hard on Joe Biden? Absolutely not. I mean, why should we be mad at him? We're defending our allies, as he pointed out. Everyone's happy to sacrifice for a proxy war in Ukraine. I mean, yeah, we've, it seems like the neoliberal or neocon, both those schools of thought, I mean, we are living in everything that they've wanted. And so, sorry if it's a total dumpster fire. But I also, I have this gut feeling it's probably a safe assumption that, uh, I don't recall any historians saying that we're being too hard on Trump and it just seemed to be wall to wall. He's the devil and this and that, and not saying that it wasn't deserved. I'm just saying that there seems to be some partisanship at play here. Just perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course we'd expect that on like Fox news, but CNN is supposed to be, but we all know CNN is just like a liberal Fox news basically. I mean, I could be mistaken. Maybe 
I think it was either CNN or MSNBC, but didn't like recently they say even like they're working to become more objective or less partisan or something to that effect. But now that sounds really fun. <laughs> wow. Can't wait for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, and actually, again, I can't recall which of those two it was, but they said something to the effect of they're going to be less progressive or something like that. And I'm like, wait, when did that, when did you start being? Oh, right. Yeah. So another clip that we could watch is Javier Becerra, who is interviewed by Chuck Todd. And this is an interesting response that he has to one of AOC's suggestions. So let's take a look at that. Talk about one of the proposals that was out there that got shot down pretty quickly. It was something that a couple of Democrats called for, including Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which is maybe temporary clinics on federal land. Um, uh, as in, and, you know, fight it in the court, you know, let the courts say no. Uh, and, and instead try it. Did you guys look into this at all? I, I think we're continuing to explore everything that's out there. Uh, the, the difficulty is that simply because it's an idea doesn't mean it can go out into practice. And so what we want to make sure is we can put things out into practice because you have people who are right now in need of abortion care services. So we're gonna do what we can to give people something as quickly as we can. Even if it may not be everything they like, we wanna make sure we're providing everything we can. That is so frustrating because like Kamala Harris, no one's responding to the question, are you looking into that? Are you even looking into that? Instead, he pivots to making it seem like people are being annoying and asking for too much. And well, we have a crisis to solve, which is that people no longer have the right to abortion. Like, yeah, no shit, Sherlock, that's in the fucking question, which you won't answer. You're not answering the question. And then you're saying you got to do something. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head, Katie, that um, it's the same sort of dodging that we've all grown accustomed to, whether it's from this person. I mean, anyone in the administration basically uh, seems to have been given some sort of guidance as to how to give these sorts of non-answers and or imply that these completely valid questions are somehow unreasonable or or asking too much or something like that. I mean, it, it, it seems to all be about focusing on getting people to think that, you know, this is just a bridge too far or beyond the realm of possibility. Again, as another example, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that there was a, a statement or a report that came out regarding Biden's ability to forgive student debt, and he had the whole thing redacted because it stated in no uncertain terms the president is totally able to do this. And so it just seems like it's all about bending over backwards to try and get people to believe that these things are just not feasible. And he's saying, why don't you try it and let them stop you? Exactly. Because even if, if you tried, worst case scenario, they take it through the judicial process or what have you. And so then, okay, then regardless, you've got a solid year or two where these better things are in place yeah. in the Get meantime. as many abortions out of the way as possible. Yeah. Just start doing it. By the way, you know, one of the worst things about the abortion ban that I don't know if everyone is thinking about is the ectopic pregnancy, which is considered abortion in some of these states. Ectopic pregnancy is literally when 
the ovum gets stuck in the fallopian tube and then can explode and then you bleed out. Right. Like that's how sadistic and uncaring these people are. In fact, I went to a protest this weekend in Pennsylvania and there was a woman talking about that and she tried to have babies. She tried to, she wanted to get pregnant and she couldn't, she had ectopic pregnancies and she would have died. Again, I can't say for certain, but my very limited understanding is that when it comes to things like what you just described, those sorts of complications There's many other scenarios, too, where the embryo could be growing outside of totally valid, serious medical scenarios that require attention. And yeah, you're right that currently it's just a total blanket, full stop, nothing's allowed. Yeah. Yeah. It's really awful. I think that maybe a lot of women need to like share their stories, their ectopic pregnancy stories. Not that it should have to be that to get people to care, but I have a feeling that a lot of people who consider themselves pro-life would care about that. Yeah. Reverend Edmund, professionally speaking, Christian fascism is real, present, and I assure this is just the beginning. We must act. The Democrats are too feeble. I totally concur, and thank you so much, Reverend Edmund. Should we play? uh... Yeah, so here's Jake Tapper. You guys are going to appreciate this. This is going to be a bomb, B-A-L-M, a soothing bomb to everyone who feels like Biden isn't progressive enough. Today, President Biden called for a change in Senate filibuster rules to allow legislation protecting abortion rights to pass with 51 votes instead of requiring 60. During a news conference at the NATO summit, Biden was asked about criticism from progressives who say he isn't doing or saying enough to protect abortion rights in the United States. Your views on abortion have evolved in your public life. Are you the best messenger to carry this forward when Democrats, many of them, many progressives, want you to do more? (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm the president of the United States of America. That makes me the best messenger. I'm the only president they got. I'm the only president they got. Let's bring in former Obama advisor David Axelrod. Um, what do you make of that answer? I'm the only president these progressives have. Yeah, look, I have some sympathy for him because uh, there are so many issues like this where there is a limit to what he can do at the moment. You know, people say, well, let's do it with a filibuster. And he, of course, endorsed that today. But he didn't have, Jake, you know this, he doesn't have 50 votes uh, to do away with the filibuster. And he doesn't really have a magic wand that can create that or make 48 votes the requirement to do to change the rule. And so, you know, but but there is this uh, there is a strong passion about this issue out there and people want him to do something to. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> there's a frustration, I'm sure, uh, on his part. It, I, it was not the best answer. I, I will give you that. There's a frustration on his part? Oh, yeah. Poor Joe. Well, what I like about that is it reminds me of Joe Biden when Charlemagne the God asked him what he had to say to black voters who wanted more from him. And he was basically, if you're not voting for me, you ain't black. Yeah. So this is one of the variations of the Joe Biden, I don't give a fuck response. During the primary, he several times told people to vote for someone else, to vote for Trump. So this is a kind of a continuation. We should do a mashup of that of him telling people to vote for someone else, that if they don't vote for him, they're black, he's the only president they got. 
essentially body shaming people. Yeah, oh, right. Remember Listen Fat? Yeah, I forgot about that. Challenging them to contests of physical wellness <laughs> and push-up contests. And yeah, but I know that many people would be able to speak more authoritatively on this than I, but my understanding is contrary to what David Axelrod said there. There are things that they can do. Just as an example, when he said something to the effect of he can't just magically create 51 votes, well, we have yet to see how efficacious it would be if Biden were to actually exert pressure on people like Manchin or Cinema. Hasn't done that once, not at all. He's supposed to be the president. He's supposed to be the guy who knows how to get things done. He's supposed to be the guy who knows how to work across the aisle. And apparently working within your party should be easier than working across the aisle, but I guess not. I mean, he has done more deal-making with Mitch McConnell than senators in his own party. At least the way that I interpret it is it seems to, again, fall into the same category I described in the previous clip, that it's all focused on fostering the belief amongst the mainstream audience that there is nothing that can be done. We played a clip last week, I believe, right? We played the clip of Kamala saying, like, basically, again, nothing was going to be done, saying that she was a woman herself, the daughter of a mother, the granddaughter of a mother. We kind of made fun of that because it was such a word salad. But I feel bad because I didn't show another really good word salad clip that I feel like even surpasses that one. So don't worry, guys, because I think she's just as bad on the environment as she is on women's issues. So this is her at a climate change event. I might need to ready myself for this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Please trigger warning everyone. Yeah. Especially true when it comes to the climate crisis, which is why we will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on to galvanize global action. With that, I thank you all. This is a matter of urgent priority for all of us, and I know we will work on this together. What did she just say? Together, work together, work on this together five times. I don't even know what she was talking about, but it's very important. It's very important. And there's a lot of working together, <laughs> a lot of working together. As Brian Frederick points out, by the way, call back to Brad saying that Biden made more deals with McConnell than he does with other Dems. Biden cut a deal with McConnell to appoint an anti-abortion judge in Kentucky. Yep, that is true. Let's watch this Bernie clip. It's about Bernard. Wednesday, Senator Bernie Sanders called for fines up to $55,000 per passenger if an airline cancels a flight due to staffing shortages. Is the situation so bad that DOT should start fining airlines? We have fined airlines where they've failed to provide refunds or treat customers but well in other ways. not for canceling a flight for staffing. Right. So there are other authorities that we may have, and we're going to look at it. But what I'd much rather do is just have a good outcome so that we don't even have to go there. It's clear that the airline sector is not ready to meet public expectations, and I'm concerned about that. Whose false fault is that? I'm not interested in the blame game. I'm interested in making sure that passengers can get to where they need to be. A record. 
Not interested in the blame game. Just interested in getting the passengers to where they have to be. You know, sometimes when you ask a question about whose fault is that, it's to figure out what to do. It's not just to play the blame game. It's actionable intelligence, right? Because you're going to do something to those people. I'm not talking about torturing them, inflicting violence on them necessarily. But I'm just saying that you got to do something to someone. It has the same tone or energy to me as like when Obama first took office and commenting on whether or not he was going to hold George W. Bush accountable for his objective war crimes. And he said something to the effect of, I'm not interested in looking backward, just looking forward. Yeah. Why would you ever punish people for torture? You know, we tortured some folks, as he said. Yeah. We tortured some folks. Yeah. Um, and and I would just, I want to share this tweet with you, Katie. This was a tweet put out by Senator Bernie Sanders. The American people are sick of airlines ripping them off, canceling flights at the last minute and delaying flights four hours on end. It's time for Pete judge to fine airlines $55,000 per passenger for every flight cancellation they know can't be fully staffed. That was outstanding. Thank you. I would also like to direct people's attention to one of these images here. It reminds us of a time in 2009 during a plague of delays and cancellations that the then Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood under the Obama administration implemented the tarmac delay rule, which fines airlines up to $27,500 per passenger for allowing domestic flights to sit on the tarmac for more than three hours and international flights to remain on the tarmac for more than four hours without providing passengers an opportunity to deplane. Ten months after this rule was enacted, tarmac delays went down by nearly 98%. So we have historical precedent here that, shocker, when you provide a disincentive for this sort of thing, these companies respond and stop doing that. (laughs) Wow. Who would have thunk? But the current transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg, says he has no interest in Playing the blame game. Yeah. I think I had read that basically he recently had a private meeting with these airline CEOs where he essentially just asked politely for them to do the right thing, which seems to kind of be at odds with one of his previous statements regarding the baby formula shortage, where he said that we are a capitalist system. And as most of our audience likely knows, in a capitalist system, private for-profit companies have a legal fiduciary responsibility to maximize profits. And so they have no interest in doing the quote-unquote right thing unless it also happens to jive with their main priority, which is making as much money as possible. So a fine like what Senator Sanders is calling for, and as was done a little over a decade ago, gives them that incentive. Yeah, imagine if someone was like, who's responsible for that mining accident that killed people? And you're like, I'm not interested in the blame game. Or who's responsible for, you know, the insurrection on January 6th? You know, I'm not interested in playing the blame game. You know, we got to look forward. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Dave L. writes, they can't cancel flights for staffing charges if they don't overbook flights in the first place. Yeah, that's right, Dave. And I don't have it in front of me, but I do know there seems to be some reporting on the topic 
I think it might have been a statement from a pilot's union that was, at least according to them, claiming that they are aware that these airlines are purposely booking flights that they know are going to get canceled, and they are booking them anyway. Frank Caprio writes, Pete Buttigieg is a clown, is clown. Katie, please run against him in his inevitable second campaign. All right, I accept. <laughs> I'll do it. Hey, I don't have the blood of like a young 11-year-old child on my hands the way that Mayor Pete does because he instituted smart streets and a kid, Tristan Moore, got hit and run over. Um, it was terrible. None of that got any attention. No, no media attention. That was really disgusting. Not in the mainstream. Yes. We talked about it. Yeah. Which, again, it's a similar thing where it's like all of these things that are happening now, at least my anecdotal what I am observing from like relatives of mine and whatnot, who just are purveyors of mainstream media, all of these things Biden is doing or not doing, it's like brand new news to them. And I have to think a lot of it is because up until now, there's basically been no attention paid to the fact that there's a lifetime record of this guy being the sort of person he is right now. But Hey, you know, if Bernie inherits like a lake shack. <laughs> oh my God, from Jane. Yeah, I know. Then that's nonstop coverage on that, yeah. you know. I just want to read a quick article. I think this would be cool. This is kind of funny, I have to admit. After a string of Supreme Court setbacks, Democrats wonder whether Biden White House is capable of urgency moment demands. Deborah Messing was fed up. The former Will and Grace star was among dozens of celebrity Democratic supporters and activists who joined a call with the White House aides last Monday to discuss the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. The mood was fatalistic, according to three people on the call, which was also co-organized by the advocacy group Build Back Better Together. Messing said she'd gotten Joe Biden elected and wanted to know why she was being asked to do anything at all, yelling that there didn't even seem a point to voting. Others wondered why the call was happening. That afternoon, participants received a follow-up email with a list of basic talking points and suggestions of Biden's speech clips to share on TikTok. The call three days after the decision eliminating federal abortion rights encapsulates the overwhelming sense of frustration among Democrats with Biden, which I'm happy that Deborah Messing is realizing how inept or not even inept, because again, it's often not a question of inability. It's a question of choice and will. So I'm glad that she has somewhat of a heart and brain and sees that they are not rising to the occasion. But there was this guy, you may have heard of him, Deb. I just want to interject and just say personally, I'm not willing to go as far as to say that she's got a heart or a brain. All right. So we're, it's a split decision on this court, on this Supreme Court. <laughs> that, that's right. We need John Roberts to, to break the tie. One of the bombshells, at least for me reading through that, was I didn't know that Deborah Messing had gotten Joe Biden elected. Right. Yeah, she did. There's that humility that we love about Deborah Messing. But there was a guy named Bernard Sanders mm. who Deborah Messing really beat up on. When she wasn't busy beating up on Susan Sarandon, she was beating up on Bernie Sanders. So, you know, we're about to bring on Chris Hedges, but why don't we play a clip of a great film that he made, this video called The Long Way Home, which is based on his experience teaching at prisons. Thomas Dollar, who spent 30 years in prison, 
said that six months after his release, he too struggles to cope. I dream that I'm still there, you know. Like, I dream that they're calling mess out. I wake up like, mess out, you know. I'm getting ready to literally get up to go start preparing for mess. Uh, wow, so many things. Uh, dealing, even, you know, uh, my wife sometimes has said to me, like, why didn't you, why you not sleep? Because I'm used to sleeping light because people moving around me, waiting for the police to come hit my bed to wake me up and say, you got to get up or you got to wake up so I can see you move. Uh, I still deal with these things now, you know. Uh, this, you know, sometimes people say that, you know, I want to be free, I want to be free, but after being caged up so long, I, sometimes you say to yourself, am I really free? You know, I know I'm on parole, that's not free. You know, I'm still, what I look at as being a slave because I can't go anywhere I want. I have to ask permission. You know, I feel like I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm 51 years old, but I feel like I'm somebody's child. You know, my parole officer is at least 20 years younger than me, you know, and when I'm going to him, I have to ask him, I have to text him and tell him I want to go here or I can't even spend the night anywhere. You know, these things are like being in prison. Those in prison carry the trauma they endured in prison with them when they leave. The emotional numbness they needed to cope on the inside. The ever-present threat of violence. The military-like regime where they are ordered about made to march in single lines, thrown into isolation for minor infractions, locked in cages the size of bathrooms, and forced to obey the whims of corrections officers. These experiences and the conditioning they engender are not easily discarded, as Boris Franklin, who was in prison for 11 years, explained. Well, one thing I learned when I got in prison, I had never heard more excuse me and pardon me and because immediately you have to let the individual know that I don't have a problem with you. So being rude in a prison comes at a different cost, especially in a maximum security prison, in this hyper-masculine space. I seen a guy stab a guy in the yard and he died. I watched it. Did I think that I would see this day? No, I got cut in my face by somebody who was mad at somebody that I was close with. You know, every day, when you wake up and you're in a situation like that and you're caged in, you don't see no way out. And you know, when people are rushing the hustle and bustle or getting on the buses when we were going to, um, to Rutgers, they don't say, excuse me. So you don't know if, you, so my, my knee-jerk response is to respond to that disrespect in the way in which I might have responded in that prison space, right? I mean, you were there when I came home and I was so socially awkward I sat next to Chris at my first family outing and I couldn't order off an IHOP menu because choices were overwhelming. I, I wasn't used to choices. We had a limited amount of choices. So your senses just get overwhelmed with everything. I couldn't nail down the timing for crossing the street. I never thought that would be a problem. I hadn't crossed the street in so long, I couldn't time the cars. I'll be sitting there just waiting for no traffic to come out. 
You have stores everywhere. You know, it's this has been whew, this was a culture shock for me coming back to a world that I really had no idea. You could th and when you're on the inside, you think you know what the world is like out here. Trust me, you have absolutely no idea. And then when I went places, I felt like even if I was in a place where nobody knew me, I felt like I was sitting in a room with a prison uniform on with DOC on the back of it. And everyone knew I had just gotten out of prison. But I didn't know there would be this storm of emotions going on inside of me that people could not see. That this anxiety that people could not see. That I was always under this pressure, which makes you want to leave. And then you get to the point to where as though to be outside at night. I always felt like I was running back home because I was out of place. I'm supposed to be locked down at this time. I'm usually locked in a cell. And I remember I used to just have to stay out later and go farther. Just drive a little further. Something as small as breaking a rule, right? Like throwing something out of a window. So that is an excerpt of The Long Road Home, which is a film made by Chris Hedges that's based on his experience teaching in prisons. And we're going to be talking to Chris Hedges about that literally in a few seconds. But before I bring him in, in case anyone needs any introduction to him, which I doubt, Chris Hedges is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who was a foreign correspondent for 15 years for the New York Times, where he served as the Middle East Bureau Chief and Balkan Bureau Chief for the paper. He previously worked overseas for the Dallas Morning News, the Christian Science Monitor, and NPR. He was the host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show On Contact and now hosts the Chris Hedges Report at The Real News. And you can find all of his work, including that video, at chrishedges.substack.com. So without any further ado, welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining. Sure. I thought we could just start by talking about, you could just give people some context because I just showed them a little clip of that, about what that film is about and why you made it. Because my students, I've been teaching in the prisons now for over a decade, and when they get out, there are so many hurdles placed in front of them that it's almost impossible to make it. A lot of them get out owing fines. And if they, don't, if they can't get work, and it's very difficult to get work, they're barred from hundreds of professions. Basically, any profession you need a license for, plumber, hairdresser, they can't get. They can't get public assistance um, because they have a record. Like one of the guys I interviewed there, Kabir, he gets a job in Whole Foods. I don't know if you showed that clip. He gets a job in Whole Foods, and then uh, as soon as the background check comes in, he's fired. Uh, and I went to the manager, you know, I, the manager might as well have been deaf. He wasn't interested in a word that I had to say. I mean, I, I know Kabir extremely well. He's one of those people who shouldn't even be in prison. He was just turned 18 and I'm in a car listening to a 50 cent song, two guys in their twenties going to a bodega to rob it. He doesn't know they're going to rob it. The owner had a gun. They had a gun. The owner gets shot. And he gets charged. He's 16 years in prison. The guy wouldn't hurt a fly. I mean, it's just so there's so many. And that's why we have such a high recidivism rate. So 74% uh, of people in our prisons, or maybe it's 76, I can't remember, after five years get back in because everything's stacked against them. So I wanted to talk to these students so people would understand how all of the uh obstacles that are placed in front of them when they get out and how the system is really designed to funnel them back in, plus the trauma. I mean, we send people 
to prison with trauma, and then we re-traumatize them. Uh, it, it, and so the, just the adjustment of emotional adjustment in prison, you have to build these kind of emotional walls. I mean, and I just, so I spent a lot of time with five of my students, all of whom are amazing, incredibly articulate, thoughtful, wonderful people, um, and just to lay out. Uh, and then you get the whole issue of trying to get parole. So when you are up for parole, you get a two-man panel. And these are, it's crazy. I mean, it's all patronage. So like, for instance, Chris Christie's former driver is on it. I mean, these people don't, or ex-law enforcement or, you know, some cop who got fired. I mean, it's just all, and uh, it, so they, they the two-man panel decides to approve you uh, for the full panel. But if they don't approve you, they can say, come back in three years. I mean, we, we talked in one case where they said, come back in 60 years. Uh, it, it, it just, it's, it's an insane system and people who are, uh, uneducated, you know, they, illiteracy is high or they have developmental issues. Um, they can't play that game. I mean, they're just trapped inside the prison forever. So it's really that story that I think a lot of people don't hear. It's called a long road home. It's on YouTube. It's in parts one and two. I encourage everyone to watch it because, uh, I think it's an aspect of the carceral state that is important. These people are thrown into a criminal caste system, in essence, uh, that you know we often don't acknowledge. What made you start teaching? How did that happen? I kind of fell into it in a way, but not really when you think about it. So I was in seminary. I was at Harvard Divinity School, but I lived in Roxbury, which is a depressed inner city part of Boston. I was going to be an inner city minister. I kind of soured on the liberal church. Uh, I'd always written. I published in the Christian Science Monitor when I was in college. And, uh, but I went from there to El Salvador. Uh, I went from El Salvador to the Middle East, mostly to Gaza, a lot of time in Gaza. Uh, I went from there to Sarajevo. I mean, so I was always putting my play, myself in physical locations where there was tremendous suffering. And uh, I have a neighbor, Celia Chazelle, who uh, is the head of the history department at the College of New Jersey. And at that time, there was no college program. Now there's a great program by, run by Rutgers University in the prison system that I teach in. But at the time, there wasn't any. And so when after they got their GED, 40, about 40% of the people who come into the prison system are illiterate. After they get their GED, there was no further education. So she was just going in and teaching like a full semester history course it didn't have any academic validity. And then she'd print a certificate out on her home computer if they completed the course, and it would go into their file and help when they went before the parole board. And that's that's how I started. And then um, then eventually when Rutgers started their program in, I think it was 2013, then I started teaching college credit courses through Rutgers. Oh, that's great. I wanted to ask you, you know, speaking of the church, you wrote a great piece called Fascists in Our Midst, Supreme Court rulings, including the overturning of Roe v. Wade, herald the ascendancy of Christian fascism in the United States. And I wanted to ask you about, um, first off, some one of the many scary things about that piece is the fact that you go over some of the cases that the Supreme Court has decided recently that the media is not covering. Um, you write, I, I can actually just, uh, read them off. Uh, let's see. So it, 
it not only overturned Roe v. Wade, ending a constitutional right to an abortion, but ruled on June 21st that Maine may not exclude religious schools from a state tuition program. It has ruled that a Montana state program to support private schools must include religious schools. It ruled that a 40-foot cross could remain on state property in suburban Maryland. It upheld the Trump administration regulation allowing employers to deny birth control coverage to female employees on religious grounds. It ruled that employment discrimination laws do not apply to teachers at religious schools. Uh, I mean, there's more, but uh, we don't have all day. Uh, were you shocked by these decisions or were these things that you were expecting from the Supreme Court? No, because I followed the Christian right for a long time. And I wrote a book called American Fascist, the Christian Right and the War in America, which on the one hand, was a bestseller. It was a New York Times bestseller. But on the other hand, I was excoriated, especially by academics uh, who uh, did not want to go after the Christian right in the name of tolerance, I suppose, and also because they didn't want to be accused of religious bigotry and everything else. Um, but they really failed us because this is an authentically fascist movement under the kind of uh, guise of what they call dominionism. Uh, I come out of the church. My father was a minister. My mother was a seminary graduate. I, of course, graduated from the Divinity School at Harvard. So I am maybe more acutely attuned to how these people distort the Bible to fit their ideology. But I also uh, was really fortunate to study with a great theologian named James Luther Adams at Harvard, who um, at the time was 80. And he had been in Germany in 1935 and 1936 and had uh, uh, joined the confessing, the underground uh, anti-Nazi church called the Confessing Church, led, led by uh, Niemöller and Bonhoeffer, until he was arrested by the Gestapo and expelled. And he immediately saw the parallels uh, with this. He said, when, when you're my age, you'll all be fighting the Christian fascists. Um, and that has really been, I think, a terrible failing on the part of the liberal church to give these people religious legitimacy. Uh, remember, uh, the German Nazis created uh, the so-called German Christian Church, which was pro-Nazi, the Nazi flag on one side and Christian cross on the other. Uh, and that's really what these people have done. I mean, they have sacralized the worst elements of white supremacy, uh, misogyny, uh, imperialism, corporate capitalism, you name it, uh, and, uh, and built parallel institutions, which is what all Fascist movements do, schools, universities, law schools, Patrick Henry Law School, its own media platform, its paramilitary groups. And I would include uh, uh, Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater G, and he now sold it off. It's called Academy or something else. I don't know. But all of these, it's all there. And of course, the twin goals is to take over the judiciary and the organs of internal security. Well, they basically have the judiciary and they are pushing through their agenda. Uh, and it, it's extremely frightening, uh, the utter failure on the part of the Biden administration and the Democrats to respond to uh, the widespread suffering. Uh, half this country lives in poverty or near poverty uh, means that uh, in the midterms, most likely these Christian fascists, this is not the old establishment Republican Party, gathered around a figure like Trump. Uh, Trump has no ideology, but he filled that void with Christian fascism, Betsy DeVos, Mike Pence, uh, Pompeo, and others, uh, Barr is a member of this. And uh, uh, these people are going to come back with a vengeance. So if they have the judiciary, in essence, 
which they do, and then they have the Congress, and then they get the uh, executive branch. It's over. It's it's what is left of our very anemic and sick democracy will be snuffed out. So what is the solution to this? Because I know that you've talked about and you've written about the lack of difference uh, or the, I should not the lack of difference, the similarities between the Democrats and the Republicans. So how do we get how do we fight these fascists? Well, that was a question I asked in the book. Now, I, you know, I went in, I spent two years with them. I had a, had a very, luckily, I had a good advance, so I, I could live off of it for two years. And I was really embedded with them in the mega churches, right to life weekends. I took an evangelism explosion course with D. James Kennedy, creationist seminars in Missouri, it was all over the country. And, um, and that was a question I asked. So, I, but I went into it with kind of the prejudice of the liberal church. In fact, my father was kind of very left wing. He was the, involved in the anti-war movement, civil rights movement. We were close to the Berrigans, or at least we didn't <coughs> we didn't know the Berrigans at the time. But the the Berrigan brothers were models for us: Dorothy Day, uh, William Stringfellow, all these figures. And so, I think what first. Uh, uh, affected me was doing, in the end, hundreds of hours of interviews with people within this movement. Their stories of despair were very real and, and heartbreaking. You'd have to be heartless not to feel for their pain, their struggles with domestic abuse, sexual violence, evictions, unemployment, substance abuse, uh, gambling addictions. I mean, it was all there. And I actually begin the first chapter called Despair. Uh, and, and I saw that how the leaders of these megachurches or the leaders of this movement manipulate that despair f- for power, but also for their own financial benefit. These people are multimillionaires, the successful ones. They, people said, well, at the beginning of the Trump administration, well, how can Trump associate with, how, or how can the evangelical right support Trump? I said, no, you don't understand. They're the same. The, these mega pastors are white male narcissists. Uh, they're just like Trump. Uh, and Trump had his sham university or his casinos. These people have their mega churches. It's exactly the same process with this difference. You know, anecdotally, the sexual proclivities of the Christian right are probably kinkier than Trump's. Um, uh, but they're the same people. And, and of course, that, that dogged me because you can't, when people retreat into a world of magical thinking, uh, when they believe that, uh, you know, dinosaurs lived with Adam and Eve, uh, uh, you can't, if you begin to try and break that down rationally or, or challenge uh, the irrationality of that, they get extremely angry because that magical world is all that they have left to protect them from the fact-based world that almost destroyed them, in many cases came very close to destroying them. Uh, and I, I, at the end of the book, I said the only way is to reintegrate these people back into the society by giving them a sense of place, stability, a living wage. Uh, and of course, the opposite has happened, which is why we have ended up where we are. So how do we fight for this? What, h- how do we make it so that these people can get those things? Or is it totally hopeless? Well, the Democratic Party ain't going to do it. Um, and, you know, this is the last window we had. I mean, Biden can't even... Uh, hold his campaign promise of $15 an hour minimum wage. So we're in deep trouble. I mean, the Democrats all acknowledge. I mean, that's why even the the, the Republicans, uh, I mean, there's only one ruling party now. The, the, the establishment Republican Party is completely 
uh, unfolded into the Democratic Party. I mean, what Robert Reich uh, a couple of weeks ago endorsed Liz Cheney for president this is just insane. Um, uh, but they're all one party, uh, Crystal and Mitt Romney and the Bushes. And then you have that cult-like uh, white man's party <laughs> built around Trump. Uh, but the connecting tissue, and you saw this in January 6th, is this Christian fascism. So um, with these people ascendant now within the Congress, um, it becomes very dangerous. Uh, and uh, I, I, you're not going to fight them by arguing them out of it. Um, I, I, you know, I really hold the, the establishment parties, Republicans and Democrats, culpable for what's happened. Um, they fertilize the soil for the rise of this Christian fascism, and, and we're all about to pay for it. You've been so generous with your time. I just had a few more things to ask you about. One is Daniel Hale, and one is, I don't know if you're up to talking about this. You wrote this moving piece about the disappearance of Megan Marin. I don't know if you want to talk about it, if you don't. Oh, Megan Marone, yeah. Well, I mean, there's. I will start with Megan there's 250,000 women a year who go missing and almost all of them uh, uh, are uh, fleeing from male perpetrated violence, especially domestic violence. Uh, and, and, and they're just ignored. So 40% of all girls and women who are uh, missing are people of color. That's a hundred thousand out of 250,000, although they're only 16% of the population. And it's even higher if you're a Native American. So, for instance, in Montana, 26% of all missing person reports are Native girls and women. They're less than 7% of the state's population. So Megan was white, well-educated. I write about this in the column, The Disappearance of Megan Marone, which is on Shearpost and on my Substack, which is chrishedges.substack.com. And uh, I knew her. Um, uh, uh, and, I, you know, these. I didn't want, I said, you know, because I knew her, she, I didn't want her to be a statistic. And so I just wrote this profile. But the fact is she was stalked by a predator um, who, in her words, and I have it from, I heard her say it on a tape Zoom. These are her words, brutally harassed and intimidated me because I wouldn't sleep with him. She was afraid to be at home, especially because he drove by her house. And she uh, was granted a leave. She's a high school teacher. She was in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and she disappeared on March 27th, which was 14 or 15 weeks. So, you know, we don't know what happened. I mean, was she abducted? Did she commit suicide? But in a way, all of that speculation uh, is uh, irrelevant because she wouldn't have been there if she hadn't been harassed and afraid. Uh, and and uh, this is just an epidemic throughout the country and a very low on the priority of law enforcement. Now, most of these women, many of these women <clears throat> are not found. They, they search the area in the park where they found her car, and then that's it. They've stopped. So uh, it, it was a way of highlighting an issue. I mean, it's personal because, of course, I knew her, and she was a wonderful person, uh, but you can read the full column. Um, in terms of Daniel, yeah, I'm going out tomorrow, which is why I got to go to bed. I got to get up at five. Um, I'm going out to see Daniel Hale, a whistleblower. In this prison, they put him in Marion, Illinois, which is the middle of nowhere. So I got to fly to St. Louis. I got to be at the prison at 830. So I got to get up at like 530 or 6. Day after tomorrow, and drive to the prison and see him. Um, I, and I, I try and 
<coughs> visit. I also have visited Mamiya, Abu Jamal, and others uh, because these people are so courageous and they've sacrificed so much, and I don't want us to forget their courage and their, um, you know, what they've given us. In the case of Hale, he, uh, he exposed the uh, widespread killing of civilians by the militarized drone program in the Middle East, and now he's spending 45 months in a federal prison for it. Have you um, been in touch with Mamiya lately? <clears throat> not lately. I owe him a letter. Not lately. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, there's Assange, who you've written about. Yeah, well, I was, over, I was over in London for Julian's wedding. How was that? Well, it was six of us who were guests, uh, but, of course, Belmarsh Prison didn't let us in. But, again, I wrote about it. It's called uh, A Marriage of Julian Assange. Well, it's, it, it was heartbreaking. I mean, I, I was with the family and with Stella uh, after we went alone. I mean, after we left the prison, I was with them, you know, until about 11 at night. And it's just so sad. Um, I mean, here's a person who didn't commit a crime. He, he in fact, he gave us so much. Uh, and just the judicial farce. I mean, the fact that UC Global, which is the Spanish security firm in the embassy, taped everything, including his meetings with his lawyers, and turned it over to the U.S. I mean, that alone invalidates the trial. Um, but, you know, I, I've been over there to sit in on a lot of the hearings, and then when I, because of COVID, I got a link, so at least I got up at like four in the morning and watched all of the hearings. It's, uh, and, and I think the failure on the part of press organizations, which printed all the material WikiLeaks put out, New York Times, El País, I mean, they just turned on him uh, the moment, almost the moment they published. And I know why, because he shamed them into doing their job and they hated him for it. Um, they couldn't not publish it because it would expose who they were. And so they grit their teeth and published it. And then they joined forces to destroy him. Right. They should be facing the same fate. Well, they will eventually. I mean, this is why it's so short-sighted, because it sets a legal precedent. So if Julian is extradited and he's found guilty... Uh, then possessing or publishing classified material, and which I did at the New York Times, is a criminal offense under the Espionage Act. I mean, also, how can you charge an Australian citizen under the U.S. Espionage Act? And that doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, uh, WikiLeaks is not a U.S.-based publication. I mean, the whole thing is just farce. It's Dickensian. It's it's uh, you know, it's not the best of British jurisprudence. It's right out of the Lubyanka. Um, and and I think that the uh, failure on the part of the establishment press and people who care about the rule of law uh, to just uh, uh, decry in, in the most vocal terms this egregious attack against a publisher, but also against the free press. I mean, we're, it's not just Julian and his family who are going to suffer. We're all going to suffer this. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Baum, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.